0: Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. Now, I know a lot of my listeners enjoy hearing about true crime stories from the past. And and many of you have been following the podcast. You know that I have a true crime book coming out later this month. But today, however, I am very excited to have a special guest who I had the pleasure of first meeting uh, last fall at one of the festivals that he was at selling books and he was signing books out there and he's written several books on michigan true crime and his name is tobin book and he's the author of several titles on true crime in the mitten state among them is a book that we're going to talk about today which is called murder and mayhem in grand rapids so welcome to the show tobin it's uh, great to have you on thanks for joining me today hey michael thanks for having me on it's a pleasure so tobin do you Begin by telling the audience maybe a little bit about yourself. How did you uh, become interested in true crime stories as a writer?
1: Once upon a time, um, I uh, was—I've always had a a fascination with true crime. It goes all the way back to when I was a teenager. Uh huh. uh, Kind of a funny story. I uh, graduated from high school. My brother graduated uh, with a PhD in psychology, and we decided to go over and backpack across Europe. Wow. Flying across. uh, the ocean back then wasn't like today. You know, you, you mm-hmm. were at the mercy of what they decided to show you in the cabin. We were in British Airways, and uh, all we saw was five hours of cricket highlights. I don't <laughs> understand cricket. Never will understand cricket, I don't think. Um, mm. uh, so the last night we spent in Europe, we wound up walking around uh, early hours of the morning uh, in w- Whitechapel.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, wound up at, uh, tipping a pint at the Ten Bells where Jack the Ripper met his, some of his victims, supposedly. Oh, and the next morning we we waddled through the airport and I faced what I remember was a very difficult decision. It was five more hours of uh, cricket highlights or mm-hmm. it was read a book. So uh. I decided to read a book. I took a look at the, the, the little bookstore in the terminal there at Heathrow and there it was. Love it. First Fright. Donald wow. Rumbelow's Complete Jack the Ripper. Wow. And I was riveted. Read it cover to cover. A couple of times I've read it and mm-hmm. I've been interested in historic crime ever since.
0: Wow, that's great. And so how long have you been a published author? I know that you have several titles out there. Um,
1: so my first two books are about forensic science, uh-huh. um, which I co-authored with the Kent County Medical Examiner. Wow, okay. And to research those books, I became a morgue volunteer. So I uh, got my gloves bloody and, and learned quite a bit about human anatomy um, and I think, uh, those first two books put me at about 20 years ago. So I think I've been writing about 20 years professionally.
0: Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's... So
1: here I am 17 later. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah. Wow. And some of your titles are amazing. I was looking at them before you came on today. It's, uh, quite a list of books. So, so let's get into some of the story. Now, this book on, uh, murder and mayhem in Grand Rapids. I, I started reading it. And I had to put it down on the, like the second story because it's pretty gruesome. The You detail a story of the murder of Mary McKendrick that was in 1894. And it, it was just a very disturbing what was done to this woman. Can you kind yeah. of outline some of the details of the story a little bit uh, for our listeners and tantalize them a little bit?
1: Yeah. So 1890s, um, there was a tremendous amount of distrust for banks, banking system. Um People, I think, eyed paper money as kind of questionable. Um, There was a lot of outrage when the United States decided to go off the gold standard and and so on and so forth. And and so some people had what they called mattress banks, right? Mm -hmm. They just kept uh, their money with them. And Mary McKendrick was rumored to have uh, uh, to carry around large amounts of cash on her person at all times in in a little pouch that she kept underneath um, her clothes. And, you know, uh, money can really make people do some strange, desperate, violent things. And mm-hmm. word got around about Mary McKendrick's, McKendrick's stash. And, uh, two guys wound up, uh, ambushing her when her husband left for work hmm. and hogtied her and strangled her to death and then ripped her clothes off so they could take the, uh, the stash of money. Wow. Yeah. So I think that, uh, the, the guy who was really the, the head behind it, that, the the, uh, brains behind the operation. had uh, He was a slippery character who uh, lived under a lot of different pseudonyms. Uh Um, He was cohabitating with a married woman in Chicago. Um, He had a habit of taking uh, pseudonyms from uh, people he knew. Um, I think he uh, adopted her last name at one point in time and, and uh, I think he loved to li- like to live that kind of lavish lifestyle, and so I think uh, he needed the money. But you know, it's one thing that Michael, that you don't hear a lot of, a lot written about
0: mm-hmm.
1: that era, is what we would call substance abuse. Right. Uh, back, as you, you're aware, the 1890s, um, before government regulation, there was any number of things that you could get at your local pharmacy, from heroin to cocaine to opium, right. morphine all kinds of strange things and these are very we know this today and i think even in 1894 there was some inkling that these things are highly addictive substances right but uh, i think that they uh, a lot of these early crimes might very well have a narcotics angle to it although that was very much kind of a hush hush topic at the time but i was looking through that chapter again um knowing that i was going to be talking about this case and thinking to myself this this it's got all the hallmarks of a narcotics uh based situation going on i've seen a lot of so i've seen some autopsies of people who were killed yeah. um just for that reason somebody's looking to get the next high and yeah. they late an elderly person because they know they can get a quick buck that way mm-hmm. and it's the narcotics tends to just i think long-term addiction tends to morph a person's idea of what's right and what's wrong
0: yeah there's a uh, story in one of one of the stories in my book, I found late in my research that the man was um, who committed the murder was actually on opiums or withdrawing from opiates half the time. And that, it, you know, when you ever get a case where you got somebody really bizarre behavior, you kind of have to look at it with the way they were looking at it when they'd write the story or they tell the story. They weren't tying it in with the drugs, and I, I started really. Comparing that, because I was in addiction uh, in the addiction uh, counseling world for about eight years, and I saw a lot of that. So it's easy to ignore it. But at, back then, like you said, those patent medicines, over-the-counter patent medicines, had all kinds of stuff in it. You know, cocaine and,
1: and well, and I think that that is one of the difficulties of writing true crime. Um, is is sometimes you get these cases where people have explanations and behaviors that come way out of left field, right? And we look at that because we're from, you know, relatively sane minds, I think, and, and uh-huh. so you look at that from a perspective of a person who's not unhinged. Right. But if you then and it becomes very very difficult because we are not unhinged to see things through the perspective of somebody who is. Right. And so, a lot of times, if if, if you can kind of like flip it, and you look at things from through the perspective of somebody who might not be um, in the right mind, uh-huh. all of a sudden now, um, you know, logic is out the door, and that that's part of it. You know, like I, I did a, a a book on a serial killer, serial poisoner, Mary McKnight, Fife Lake area. Uh-huh as many as 14 people. My research indicates 11, a lot of them children, a lot of relatives, all with strychnine. And when they caught her, she gave a confession and she kept saying over and over again, I never meant to harm them. Well, what, what do you mean? How can you, you, never meant to harm them? Wow. You gave them, you know, enough strychnine to, to down an elephant, right? Wow. You never meant to harm them. And I'm thinking, okay, how, how can you possibly in your mind, um, you know, kind of marry those two concepts of open mm-hmm. overdose and not meaning to hurt them. But when you realize that Mary is probably not thinking with any kind of logic um, that you and I might have, then all right. of a sudden you start to look, well, is there any way in her work perspective where she could justify such a thing and say she wasn't hurting people? And that, you know, when right. you look at things from that all of a sudden you, you start to see uh, now there's a glimmer of what might have been the justification for some pretty horrific acts
0: mm-hmm. yeah you never know what their justification is you know but she was obviously in her thinking process probably it, it's it's strange especially when, um, historically women were more like 90 percent of poisoners were women from a historical perspective from what i've been finding, and you see this mentioned in true crime shows even today on TV that uh, poisoners tend to be you know, largely shifted towards women because um, it's kind of a, a covert crime um, that, you know, it's not so uh, brazen as like stabbing or shooting somebody, you know. it's a And they were also once taking care of people's food and whatnot, you know. Um <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, yeah, you're absolutely right on that. And um, I can quantify it a little bit uh, for you. But uh, in my latest book, it's called Killer Women of Michigan. Uh The first or second chapter is called The Gazetteer of of Felonious Females. And what Uh I did is I found the records of of, uh, all the women who were sentenced to life in prison during the entire existence of the old Detroit House of Corrections, I actually went a little bit farther than that. So 1861 is when that facility opened. I went a little bit past before that. I right. went up right through the roaring twenties, right. And in that span of time, in that what 75-year period of time, there were only a grand total of 34 women who were sentenced to life in prison. Okay. And a vast majority of those were found guilty and convicted for poisoning a lover or a husband. Um, a rival in a love triangle using right. one of the two available poisons at the time, which would be strychnine or arsenic. Now, that is not that is not to include all of the second degree murderers who had lesser sentences because of plea deals or because a jury took, all male jury took heart on the fact that they were living with maybe a uh, heavy handed, abusive, angry, drunk husband. Um, right. But uh, so the, the number of poisonings back then, I think, among, uh, among you know, females was, uh, among female offenders, was quite high.
0: Yeah, in my book, I've got the Sarah Haviland case where she uh, poisoned her three children. And she was uh, the last remaining woman at Jackson Prison when they opened the Detroit House of Corrections and they moved them over there. She was left behind as the, uh, she was the caretaker of the warden's children. Yeah, those, you
1: know. I have I have a blurb on her. I think she's yeah. like the first woman in my gazette here. It's just a little paragraph right. about her and her crime and what happened to her. Um, yeah. yeah, so the great grandmother of Michigan's female lifers, if you will.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, she I think she was either the first or the second. Her 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 prison number was like number eleven. You know, of all the inmates yeah. there, so she was very early on at the the Jackson prison. Uh, she may have very well been the first woman there, um, but
1: might have been. I, I don't know yeah. any others, and I've I've done a, a lot of studying of this. But here's kind of an interesting factoid for you. So back then, when Haviland was uh, convicted, mm-hmm. she would have been sentenced to uh, life in solitary confinement at hard labor um, right. in Jackson, right? state penitentiary right. but they didn't have facilities for women i think they they, uh-huh. they ate at the same you know the men and the women ate at the same you know dining yeah. hall you can imagine what that was like so they transferred them all when they opened up the old detroit house of corrections in 1861 yeah but they didn't change the state law judges were to send women to the state penitentiary right for life to serve their term in Correct. comes a a a, a uh arsonist from Grand Rapids um, Esther Coffeen. sometimes uh-huh. i see it spelled coffin ironically right. and she burned up a building didn't kill anybody but caused a lot of uh, lo- a lot of property damage and she was given a life sentence and the judge when he handed down the sentence sentenced her to life solitary confinement hard labor at you know the Michigan uh, Penitentiary of Southern Michigan, whatever it was called at the time. Wow. And and so she gets there off the train to Jackson, and they refuse to take her because they because all of their females except for Sarah Haviland have been transferred over to the DeHoco. Wow. But they can't okay. transfer her because the judge changed the the sentence. So wow. she spent the first few years of her confinement in the Jackson jail, the county jail. Wow. Ultimately what happened is the legislature you had a feuding warden and a judge, uh-huh. and neither was going to give. So what happened was the uh, the legislator change, legislature changed the wording of the law so that all females would do their time in the Detroit House of Corrections. So at that point in time, um, Jackson just became a, a processing facility. I think all women were processed there. Like, in, like the axe murderer, Nellie, murder, murderess, Nellie Pope, 1895, Detroit. Wow. She was sentenced to life in prison. Get this, she was sent west to Jackson for processing and then he turned around and sent her right back to Detroit. Uh, wow, to that's do crazy. Yeah. yeah, it is crazy how the how the law was. And so you had a... The only female arsonist I know of in our state, I'm sure there has to be more than one, but mm-hmm. Esther Coffin's the only one that I know of, and, and she, she became the victim in a tug of war that ultimately led to a change in the laws. Wow. Uh, kind of fascinating.
0: Yeah, I read this study when I was researching my book about... The women in the Victorian era, because you know the the juries were predominantly men, the judges, and there was this um, cultural view that women were not predisposed to murder. So there was a tendency for a jury, especially if the woman showed up at trial looking pretty and looking meek. That they would, you know, they they could put on the airs of being just a, I couldn't have done this kind of thing. And they were inclined to believe her uh, unless there was more than circumstantial evidence. Like, there was hard evidence convicting them. Like, Haviland was caught with the, you know, the poison and everything. Whereas there's another one, uh, Mary Sanderson. She got off. She put ground glass in her husband's uh, food. And it was all circumstantial and he died, you know, and it was all, you know, to get his estate, you know, she married, she was a a girl in her twenties marrying a man in her eighties. I mean, it was all, they had all of this evidence about her, you know, he dies within three months of their wedding, their marriage and something like that. And, uh, and she went up, uh, she got charged with murder and then got, um, acquitted and then the prosecutor was so convinced that she did it he brought another trial for attempted murder on her, which is kind of unusual. And you wouldn't see that today getting kind of that double jeopardy issue, but she was tried completely twice and acquitted twice on those two separate charges. And, um, the jury's just, she was a young, pretty little thing, you know, and she got, uh, convinced them that she was innocent, you know, even though there was testimony of somebody seeing her putting the glass in the food, you know, and, um, No one else was serving, making this man's meal. How did they get in there? He didn't make his meals himself, you know. So. Wait, what year is that? That was the last story in my book. That's 1898. I was going to ask you if you covered that. What county? It's in uh, Calhoun County. Calhoun? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it was an interesting story. So, so anyways, going back to your book, uh, there's some fascinating stuff about the jail cells that you had uh, written about in Kent County. And I found that kind of amazing, the details that you put into there. And you actually found some of the manufacturer's pictures of these jail cells and worked those illustrations into the book, which really kind of set the stage for one of your stories there about the, the prison escape or the jail escape that happened in the Kent County Jail. And Yeah, a couple uh, of the chicken
1: peas. Yeah.
0: yeah. You want to talk a little bit about that or how those jails were made? and?
1: Yeah, so those the county jail cells at the time were made out of lattice, uh, that a type of pattern called lattice. And so the bars were wider, but they okay. were thinner. Mm-hmm. And the company uh, presented that to uh, facilities, to counties as being harder to cut through because you had to cut through two, four, six bars, right? right. And then you could push it open to make like a hatch. Um, so there were more bars to cut more places where if you had rolled steel bars, you'd only have to cut three places. Could you could push them out that way? The difference is, is that they were using either some type of low grade steel or a steel with a heavy iron concentrate or, or in the earlier days, just plain iron. Right. And it's soft. So these guys could very easily use, you know, smuggle into the jail through a, a visitor wife, girlfriend, a coil of steel, um, and they could just saw their way right through. A lot of times they did it as a used soap to sort of cover up the, 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 the places where they had cut.
0: Oh, I see. And,
1: yeah. uh, so all over the United States, when you had county jails, you had these type of lattice type cells. Mm-hmm. And uh, every, every county jail cell, that I, every county jail had some type of an escape story where people cut their way out. Oh, um, Catch jail, they they cut their way out of the cell block, got through the window, and they <laughs> they <laughs> knotted bed sheets together, you know, to, to lower to make themselves a rope ladder and lowered themselves off, they lowered themselves down, and scurried off in the dead of night. Um, wow! And uh, so I think that you know the two the two major jail cell manufacturers in the United States at the time, one was E. T. Barnum, which is not to be confused with P. T. Barnum, and that was Detroit, Edward Barnum. They made wrought iron stuff, uh, gates and things for um, affluent houses, larger estates, things like that. And they made jail cells. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and all the paraphernalia that went with them. And then the, the Pauli Jail Cell Company was in St. Louis. Wow. And they they both made those lattice-style jail cells. It's not at all like it is today where they have you know rolled steel. It's, uh, it's telescopes, so they have bar inside bar inside bar. And then wow. on top of that, I think they, they pour in molten steel. So you, you could be sawing all day long, and I don't think you'd get through one of those. Yeah, but in yeah. in the days of yore, it was very, very common for those type of prison escapes to, to occur. Wow.
0: Well, in this book also, you have a dark tale of an auntie Smith. Can you go into a little bit about her story and um, what she uh, did that was so dark and... Horrible. Yeah, Auntie
1: Smith, California, her name was, um, a.k.a. Auntie Smith, was uh, one of what I call a, a shadow group of people. Um, every major city would have had a red light district, every single one of them. And right. you know, I think prostitution was illegal, but I think people, by and large, turned a blind eye to it. And uh, there would have had to be a collateral group of people supporting this network. So you would have pharmacists that peddle drugs, for instance. You would mm-hmm. have, um, you know, you, you'd have people that handled the business side of it. And then, of course, you'd have to have the abortionists because contraception wasn't exactly like it, what it, like it is today. And you know right. there would have to be accidents. There would have yeah. to be. So every every city that had red light districts had an abortionist. And um, Auntie Smith was... Grand Ra- was the abortionist, one of the premier abortionists for Grand Rapids. Uh, wow. Detroit had, had several. And what they did is they, you know, they, they did abortions, um, but they didn't do any kind of modern, uh, cl- any kind of modern uh, type of cleanliness. So they're, they're, you know, the standards back then were different. So they didn't wow. exactly clean the implements. Uh-huh. Uh, and so inevitably... I mean, your body can get through a lot, but when you you yeah. put in, you, know, you have an unclean surgical tools that are being used, mm-hmm. it's only a matter of time before someone gets a, a, a blood disease like peritonitis or right. septicemia, and sepsis can kill just really fast. So, when you have these abortionists, inevitably, they're going to lose somebody. It's not because they wake up in the morning and say, yeah, I'm going to go kill somebody today. It's right. just simply accident right but because these things were so highly illegal um, whenever they lost somebody which was usually a teenager uh, the court tended to throw the book at them. Wow! so California Smith our uh, one of our local ab- abortionists here um, performed uh, what they called an illegal surgery I mean these they, you know the Victorian era as you know I mean you yeah. know the, the sanitized press they didn't call it an abortion They you called it an illegal surgery that was their euphemism for it And uh, she conducted illegal surgery, and and, um, as a result, uh, one of her young patients died of septicemia, and uh, she was caught. She was thrown in prison. She was convicted of second-degree murder, I believe, and thrown in jail. And I think that uh, at the time, her defense lawyer wanted to lessen the sentence. It was not a real long sentence, 7, 10 years, something like that. But I think she was like 68 years old at the time, and so her defense wanted that sentenced to be lessened so she didn't die behind bars but you know she did anyways and what's really interesting about that is um from my own research the abortionists who get caught tried and convicted for it wind up doing longer terms in prison than do uh serial killers wow. in that age wow yeah very very seldom so, so prison sentence at that age at that premeditated first degree homicide was a 20 years prison mm-hmm. sentence yeah possibly a problem, right and uh, a lot of political cachet to be had in, in governors pardoning lifers female lifers especially and they did so wow. if you look at you know the list that i was telling you about those 34 hardly any of them went 30 years and in, in fact some of them went shocking shockingly few years for what they did. But the right. abortionists, they get caught, male, female, they tended to do longer sentences. That just yeah. gives you an idea of how how bad those illegal surgeries society considered, the justice system considered those illegal surgeries at the time.
0: Yeah, there's one case in my book where um, the husband, because the, the woman died, they found her body with these tools hanging out of her, and uh, they convicted him of having uh, bought the tools because he confessed to having bought her the tools. At first denied any knowledge of it. And then when they put him in jail and they sent him to the Ionia facility, which apparently was supposed to be pretty bad at that time. Um, And I, he, I think he got 10 years or something like that, but that, uh, and there was another family member that was accused, but they never were able to tie her to it. So he's the only one that confessed to having bought the tools or just for buying the tools not having convicted him of having attempted the abortion, he went to prison for 10 years just for having possession of those tools that they use. So, yeah, kind just of a underscores how serious.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, just how serious that was
0: taken. Yeah, Uh-oh. exactly. So you and I are going to be participating in a program that we put together down in Jackson. We are. It's yeah. called the Michigan True Crime Symposium. and This was kind of an idea I came up with when I was reaching out to – um well, it started with me speaking with Judy Gale Krasnow. She's been she's the one that wrote the book called Jacktown, and she had mentioned we had, we had to get together and do a, a an event in Jackson when my book comes out, and she put me in touch with Art Six Thirty Four, which apparently was is part of the old Jackson Prison compound. I guess it used to be one of the workhouses or something that was connected to the prison because it's right next door to the old prison, and. They were so nice. They said, oh, we'll give you the space for free, and we'll just, you know, we really want to help you out with this. So I said, okay, well, let's – so we sat brainstorming, me and the people at Art uh, 634. I said, what if I reach out to some other authors and see if they all want to come? We'll just do a massive book signing, and we'll do some talks about stories from our books and ter- call it a, a Michigan True Crime Symposium. And maybe it'll grow. Maybe next year we'll have double the authors, and it just becomes kind of an annual thing that we do. And they loved it. They're hosting it. They're providing us with this great space. I haven't been out there yet to look at it, but apparently from the photos online, it looks really good. So it's going to be at Art uh, 634, which is located at 634 Mechanic Street in Jackson. And Tobin's going to be there. He's going to be speaking, and I'm speaking. I haven't confirmed if Tom Carr and Judy are going to speak, but I, I imagine we can twist their arm to tell a story or two. And the four of us are going to be taking part in this um, in this uh, little get-together about Michigan true crime for a couple hours there at Art 634.
1: I'm excited. Um, yeah. I'm excited to hang out with you a bit. Yeah. And uh, swap some stories from the darker side of Michigan history. I can't wait.
0: Yeah, it's going to be fun. And you're going to bring several of your titles that people can buy copies, so if they have one of your other ones but they want to get – Another one, you know, you've got yep. several to offer them, so that's going to be yes. really cool. And I think Judy's got a couple of books, and Tom's got a whole stack of them. So there's going to be a lot of books out there for folks to to get. But also, you know, just listening to you today, you've got stories that you can tell that are just roll off, and and people will love it. You know, so I'm going to Hopefully. see if we can set up a PowerPoint too, maybe show some pictures of certain things. You know, so I'm I gotta I'll get back with you on that. But uh, any any last minute. Story or thing that you'd like to tell to maybe intrigue? What was your most intriguing story that you found when you were researching? I know you've done a lot of, you've been doing this for quite a while. Which one really like, kind of blew you away, you know, when you were finding the details about?
1: There was a case uh, uh, involving some heads that were found in um, a trunk in um, the Detroit area. It's actually uh, Ferndale. They wow. found like, so it was a family that was rented a house, right? And mm-hmm. the, the kid was, the one little boy was told not to go in the attic, right? With, of course, you know, he, that just made him want to go in the attic. And he mm-hmm. comes across a trunk and there's these three skulls, right? And They have some hair attached to them and some parts of bloody scalp. And they trace these skulls to the previous occupant. And it turns out this guy is doing time in, in, in uh, Michigan City prison. Because they caught him with a body that he had unearthed from a cemetery. Um, huh. So the, the question became is, you know, did this guy somehow acquire these skulls? Did he dig them up? Right. Um, they looked all over the place and they couldn't find any bodies that were missing from cemeteries. And then, of course, there's the blood, right? So then it became the speculation was that maybe he killed these, these victims, right? But they couldn't, they couldn't quite figure out who they were.
0: Wow! Right. Well, the case
1: kind of goes cold, and this guy winds up getting caught in Mississippi. Um, he had murdered a husband and his wife in their bed, Wow. and he had cut pieces of their body off, and he had salted them, and he was, you know, apparently snacking on on pieces. So oh. he was essentially a cannibal, right? Wow! Most brutal crime you could ever imagine. He got he got hanged uh, for for that that those murders in, in Mississippi, but back to the skulls. I mean, we still don't know who they belong to, um, where wow. they came from, why this guy had them. he just hmm. liked to be around, you know, if he was just a pedophile, you know, he, he just liked to be around, uh, you know, dead bodies or, or, or what? I mean, it's wow. just, it's just bizarre, right? It's bizarre. And I thought that, you know, that guy was just a ghoul, that's what they. Uh-huh. That's the they would have used for a guy who's uh, likes to be around bodies. You know, so a, a, a ghoul. Right. But they caught him in in, yeah. a, in a in a cannibal killing. So wow. now you think, okay, well the skulls belong must maybe they belong to victims and they did have bloody scalps on them. But but isn't it odd then that nobody's missing? You know, they can't figure yeah. out who could possibly be these three victims. Wow. That's that's probably one of the wildest stories. This guy happened to be in Cleveland and there were some killings there and you know uh-huh. you, you wonder. I mean there's a lot of really high-line stories like you and I could talk about that made front pages everywhere, right? But right. some of these front headline cases just basically just went right underneath the radar. It's kind of hard to imagine how that case would have escaped national attention to be honest with you. Wow. Um, yeah. But that's that's what ones that that i've written about
0: wow interesting and are you working on any new books
1: yeah so i I have one my my book killer women in michigan just came out last week
0: okay Okay. um
1: and then uh i have called detroit burning which is about the 1863 race riot in detroit okay which uh was sparked off by a crime that wasn't a crime um that's going to come out in april and I'm telling you that you're going to see some things about Michigan history that are just going to floor you, just mm-hmm. floor you. I mean, stuff that just isn't ever talked about. And wow. then I have uh, another book coming out later in the year, I think, about a Black Widow-style serial killer. Um, okay. So, yeah, so I, I've got – last year was kind of – I wrote three last year. It's kind of a busy year. Mm-hmm. Um so right now, I'm just in a little bit of a holding pattern, waiting for the others to come out. I'm, I'm exploring some other options for uh, some future projects. But okay. nothing, as I'm speaking, nothing concrete.
0: So the one that's coming out in April, you think that'll be there on April 6th when we have the, uh, um, our event over in Jackson? I don't know.
1: Okay. I don't know about
0: that. The
1: I'm kind of yeah. th- thinking not, but okay. maybe. Could be. Good. So I'm hoping that gets some attention. That's just a bizarre – it's like everything else I like. to write about bizarre stuff, you know, it's mm-hmm. with weird twists and things. Um, right. Even some of the stuff that seems like garden variety stuff winds up having some pretty strange twists. So I guess that's how I like them, right? I mean, you know.
0: Yeah, and, and you never know when you start digging into a story. It may just seem benign at first or just a small detail, and then you do a little more digging, and suddenly you have an avalanche of data that you'll find that is – it's been lost. People didn't know, or it wasn't there, or nobody connected the the two stories from the two different papers before, and and suddenly you have this amazing story that um, you know puts itself together when you start connecting all the pieces. You know, so it's that's, uh,
1: that's the fun, right? That's that, all. The that's fun the of fun
0: it. of it all. You know. So, yeah. Yeah. well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today, uh, Tobin, yes, um, and um, I look forward to hanging out with you on April sixth there in Jackson at Art Six Thirty Four um so i hope to have you back on we'll have to get you back on we'll talk about some of your other books because you certainly have a lot of stories to tell
1: yeah I, i'm sorry i was so hard to get a hold of this time around but no, no worries
0: in- you've got a busy schedule so do i so i appreciate it uh you taking the time so i have been speaking with tobin book and he has boo.
1: book, book Ooh, you got it, book.
0: <laughs> and he has several uh, book titles. We were talking about a little bit of the stories from murder and mayhem in Grand Rapids. I'll put the link to his book as well as his website in the show note descriptions for you folks. Definitely check that out and sign up and get uh, be there on uh, at art. 634 at the michigan true crime symposium in jackson it's april 6th it's a saturday afternoon two to four and we're gonna have a lot of fun we're gonna be talking a lot of true crime stories i'll put the link to the facebook event on there so you can sign up and just uh, it's a free event so come on out buy some books enjoy hearing some stories bring your friends and you get to meet um, this wonderful great author here, Mr. Tobin Book, and myself Buk. and a couple other great authors. Maybe we'll get a few other people to join us at that point. Thanks again uh, for coming on today, sir. It's been fabulous time talking to you. and I love I love hear how we just kind of wandered around and, and covered all kinds of interesting stories. So let definitely have to have you back on again.
1: Thanks, Michael, and congratulations on the release of your new book.
0: Well, thank I look you. I forward to reading it. So that concludes today's Journey Through History with author Tobin Book. He had to head on to another appointment. So I just wanted to remind you about the Michigan True Crime Symposium, where he is going to be part of it, as well as myself, Judy Krasnow, and Tom Carr. All of them have been on my program before. And that is going to be on Saturday, April 6th from 2 to 4 p.m. at 634 Mechanic Street at a place called Art 634. And it's a really fascinating looking facility. You can look it up online, but I'll put the link to the Facebook event in the show note descriptions. I'll also put a link to Tobin Booth's website on the show notes as well. So you can check out his other books. He has some incredible titles. And of course, you can always find his work also on Amazon. And of course, if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening.